Hello, everybody. Terrence Lehew here with another episode of the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, where we talk philosophy from the farm. Our guest today is Jared Gettel, dubbed the Indiana Jones of Seeds by the New York Times. He's the founder of Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds and has journeyed far and wide to obtain heritage and heirloom seeds. Jared started his first garden at age three and ever since wanted to be involved in the seed industry. At age 17, he mailed out the first Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Catalog. Today, it offers the largest selection of 19th century seeds available on the market. With his wife, Emily, Jer has co-authored two books, The Heirloom Life Gardener and The Baker Creek Vegan Cookbook. Today, Jer will be sharing how and why he started Baker Creek, what heirloom means, the history of seeds, and much more. This was a fun discussion, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Jer Gettle. Jarek Gettle, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Sure, appreciate it. Now, starting off, would you mind if sharing a brief biographical sketch with the audience? You know, I basically uh, got interested in seeds from my grandparents and great-grandparents, and of course my aunts and uncles and parents. We grew up in a gardening family, a uh, farming gardening family in uh, the Boise Valley area in Idaho and Oregon, on the right on the border, actually. And uh, everybody around basically had gardens. So uh, I kind of grew up in the garden. My first memories of looking at a publication was a seed catalog in the winter, sitting there in the winter, dreaming about spring. And my first earliest memories of being outside were in the garden, you know, next to the um, summer squash plants, you know, as tall as me. And just uh, that was my first memories, you know, as earliest memories were the insects and the squash and the tomatoes and flowers in the garden. So from there, you know, I, my interest in gardening just keep in, it kept increasing. And um, even at like four and five years old, I decided, you know, someday I wanted to work for a seed company. And my interest in unusual varieties also and, and ethnic and uh, traditional varieties, you know, started very young. It was like amazing. There, here's a radish from China in the old Gurney's catalog, or here's a, uh, you know, giant beet, uh, giant mango beet, or a lemon cucumber. It was, uh, you know, right away fascinated me. That's really cool. There, there is so much more variety, I think, than people know to a lot of varieties. I, I'm very fortunate. I'm an organic inspector, and so I get the opportunity to visit a lot of different farms that grow a lot of different seed varieties. And just some of these names, the, the heritage behind some of these seeds is absolutely fascinating. You know, the stories and the families that they come from and the countries they come from and regions and counties and cities, it's so much, you know, in people's uh, culture, whether it's in the U.S. or China or India or Europe, wherever they come from. And then it's interesting to see how the seeds travel and reconnect with different populations and then sometimes come back to those populations, you know, 100 years later. And uh, sometimes they change slightly over time, and sometimes they're almost exactly the same as their ancestors. But it's just a fascinating uh, the way seeds develop and change, as well as stay the same in many ways through different cultures and eras and centuries. Um, it's amazing, amazing to be able to pass these things down and to receive them from the past. I really want to dig into this topic a little bit more, but first I have to ask, how does a 17-year-old decide to start a seed company? Well, it basically started as a hobby. You know, I started out uh, slaving and collecting seeds, trading seeds, um, both through Seed Savers Exchange and online. You know, uh, the Internet was just coming out, um, you know, pretty pretty well in the, you know, mid to late 90s. So it was kind of a 
great opportunity to connect with people all over the planet. And then I'm also, uh, you know, I, I'd always wanted, even from a five-year-old, I'd wanted to, you know, somehow work for a seed company. And it just started becoming clearer as I got older that why not start selling our seeds and what I grew each year in the, my garden and see what happened. So um, it, yeah, I just decided to print a price list. And uh, gradually, you know, after a couple of years, it took off. And, you know, every year it's grown from ever since the beginning, it's grown a little every year. Some years a lot, some years a little, but that's basically how it started. It was just a, a hobby that I, you know, I knew I wanted to work with seeds one way or the other. That's incredible. And it's really exciting to hear that you had such a passion for it from such a young age. I think that oftentimes it seems today we have a lot of young people that don't necessarily know what they do or what they want to do. It's really cool to see, no pun intended, but the seeds of your future starting at such a young age. Yeah, I think it was mostly because I grew up, you know, you know, well, multiple things. I was always curious with, I think, genetic diversity and, uh, you know, the whole thing of like, here's a red grasshopper, here's a, gray, a green grasshopper, just the differences in genetics. But then also, you know, all the connections with people, peoples and cultures and families and, you know, the whole story of how seeds, um, I think that's what fascinated me to it. And growing up in a family with everybody gardening, I got to basically, you know, those early years, I got to see a lot of different gardens and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time gardening. So I think it just kind of was second nature. Now, the New York Times called you the Indiana Jones of Siege, which I think is so cool because, I mean, besides being an Indiana Jones fan, I love how it really brings to light the historical significance of some of these seeds, the, the cultural significance of some of these seeds. Would you mind sharing a little bit about some of the travels or the locations that some of these seeds come from? Oh, it's, yeah, it's just there's so, so many different stories and so many different trips, it's hard to know where to begin. But, um, for example, um, here's an interesting uh, seed. It's the Yokohama squash, and this didn't come directly from my travels, but it came from a Mr. Burr in the 1860s. Uh, President Lincoln sent him to Japan. It's like the, when Japan opened up finally after all, all the, you know, several centuries in Japan, but his brother was a seed um, a seedsman and plants, a uh, plant seller in New York. So he started sending things back, uh, among which were like the hosta plants, which are everywhere today. You know, everybody has hosta plants in their yard or garden. But he sent so many different Japanese things back. But one of them was the Yokohama squash, which was popular in the U.S. catalogs. It was probably in 15 or 20 catalogs in the, you know, the 1860s, 70s, 80s. And then it disappeared. And uh, I just read about it in old catalogs. And I started searching around and finally found a gentleman in France that had the seed. I got some seed from this gentleman who'd kept it alive in, which had been kept alive in France, ordered it here in the U.S., and I, we'd been growing it here and offering it for the last, like, 15 years or 20 years. And, um, and, and then I was wondering if it was still in Japan. So about two years ago, we finally got to take a trip to Japan, and we searched a lot of different seed companies and visited any company that was selling heirloom seeds still in Japan. And nobody had seen it, so it was exciting after 160 years to take it back and they would get online and show us what they think might be the like the descendants of this squash, which don't look the same anymore, but they look somewhat similar. So um, they they believe that you know this squash doesn't exist in Japan anymore. So that's kind of you know that's that's the kind of fun stuff we get to do you know uh, on a day to day basis. And then also for another uh, you know many many cases of people coming to our store and finding something they can remember as a child like maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago, and they haven't been able to find sense, and that's always fun. You know, we've had people from Japan to people who are just local neighbors here to people from, you know, China or India or many different places that have not seen something in many years, and it's always fun to reconnect people. 
And uh, whether we're here in the U.S. or we're traveling, you know, we're always connecting people not only to our seeds, but sometimes even their seeds. So that's kind of what, uh, you know, what we do. That is incredible. Again, just the sheer history behind some of these seeds is amazing. The fact that that particular variety of squash wasn't even in Japan anymore. It just boggles my mind. I love the the stories behind it. And I mean, no, it's, there's so many, so many fascinating stories, you know, everywhere we go, you know, when you're into the seeds, there's always somebody, you know, I went, visited my aunt and uncle, um, in Oregon a few years ago, and there was a neighbor who had a melon that he'd been growing for like almost 40 years and he'd been selecting it. It's the sweetest melon. He grew many melons, but he was selecting this variety as the sweetest melon. It's called Tommy Apple Melon. We named it after the gentleman. But it originally was an Asian type of a melon, but he'd been selecting it. It had probably been crossed at one time, but he'd been selecting it for 40 years. And it was, you know, the best tasting melon we've ever tasted as far as sugar content goes, just really sweet. And, uh, you know, that's one example here in the U.S., but then, you know, as you travel, you know, when we're in Taiwan, we found a white bitter melon. And, you know, when we're in China this year, we were really excited to bring home a bright pink uh, celery. Actually, not this year. We didn't bring it home. It was like a year and a half ago now almost. But anyway, uh, we brought this pink celery home, and it has just bright pink stems, and totally like anything we'd ever seen before. So it's just, uh, you know, everywhere we go, we're always trying to uh, – find not only vegetables with interesting stories, but also vegetables that have interesting colors. And, you know, these colors also represent, you know, nutrient values. So that's kind of our our goal is finding the most nutrient-dense, most colorful, and most historic vegetables, you know, that we can find. And most diverse, of course. That is amazing. That just, again, truly amazing because really what it is is the seeds carry along a part of the culture with it. Food and the culture are kind of intertwined in ways we don't appreciate. But it really does start with, in livestock, the breeds, in seeds, the actual seed varieties themselves. Because, with it, like in the example of the melons, it's growing in that one location for so long it, that it develops its own unique variety to itself. Now, you guys have its, its own unique variety now. It just it boggles the mind. Now, I, I do have to, since we're going to be discussing heirloom here, what is a rough definition of heirloom varieties for people that may not be as familiar with the term? An heirloom seed is kind of open to interpretation, just like the word antique or vintage. But in general, it's a variety that's, you know, been passed down from generation to generation. And how long that has to be, you know, is, you know, open to interpretation. There's varieties, you know, that are becoming heirlooms that are basically new heirlooms that, you know, somebody has developed, you know, maybe 30 years ago, which maybe aren't old enough to be defined as an heirloom. And then there's other varieties, you know, that have been around hundreds of years. And some cases, you know, there's varieties in a few cases, you know, potentially even 2,000 years ago. Although, you know, sometimes we don't know exactly at that state if it's the actual variety or not, but very similar strains have been, you know, documented. But up to about four or 500 years ago, we had really good documentation on, you know, quite a few varieties. And especially in the last, you know, couple centuries, there's many, many varieties that are documented. So as far as like uh, how old it is, that's open to interpretation. But, you know, some people say 50 years, but, you know, it's kind of a... uh, it's kind of open to your interpretation, but it's basically an open pollinated variety that's not um, hybrid. It's a variety that um, you can save every year and it'll come true, you know, to its parent. Okay. Again, I my background actually is in livestock. I grew up on an orga- on our organic belted Galloway farm, and so early on, I had an appreciation for 
the uniqueness of a variety of something. And it, we, in livestock world, keep distinct breeding records for the heritage of a particular strain of cattle. I think it's really neat that seeds can be the same way. How can other people yep. get involved in helping to preserve the identity of some of these seeds? Because it seems like something that maybe gets forgotten from time to time. Yes, basically, there's multiple ways you can do it. But one thing to do is even if you just adopt one seed, you know, whether it's something in your local community or something that somebody, your neighbor gives you or something you find on a trip or something that's just special to you that you really like and just keep growing it every year. You know, that's one thing. You know, that's the easiest thing. Almost everybody could, you know, if they have a garden, could save at least a few things in their garden and then pass them on to others in your community. You know, give them to your local seed bank. If you have extra seeds, share them with your neighbors. You can always trade them you know, at the local garden club or, um, and there's also seed swaps. If you get into, uh, you know, seed saving in a bigger way, you can always take your seeds to a seed swap and, uh, exchange seeds with other people. I get new seeds to try out each year. That's, uh, there's lots of ways to get connected, but, you know, just start saving some seeds. It's really easy and it'll keep a, you know, especially local varieties in your area, find some local varieties and keep them going. Now, I'm just a little curious here. What are some of the steps people need to do to save a seed? Is it as simple as opening the plant and taking the seeds out, or is there more to it? Um, in general, that's pretty much it. Um, there's, there's a few things to know, though. If you have different varieties of some crops, they cross really easily, especially depending on when they're growing. But say you have two varieties of corn growing next to each other, most likely you're going to get some of the kernels that cross. Um, so in some cases you can only really grow one crop in your garden of that type in order, like one tomato. But, um, if you have a few feet, a tomatoes really don't take a lot of isolation. So even sometimes side by side, they're fine. But, you know, if they're 20 feet away, usually you're okay. Other things like corn, they might need a mile or so away to make sure you're safe. So there is some to know, to get to know, but it, to start out with, you can always just start saving seed, planting it. If you make a few mistakes along the way and get a few ears of corn that are a different color, it's not going to be, uh, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world. You know, you can basically learn, learn say, seed saving from, your, you know, your neighbors, your friends, uh, you know, garden clubs, whoever is doing it already, but also just practice on your own, you know, see how it goes, see how it crosses, see how far things need to be apart in your own area, you know, mm-hmm. for a home gardener. Uh, especially at first. And then as you get better, then hopefully eventually you'll be able to keep these varieties pure and true. But the, the biggest thing is learning which things cross and which things don't. That's the, um, that's the main thing. I have to say my favorite soundbite from this entire conversation so far is adopt a seed. <laughs> it, it, it's a really great way of thinking about it because it's taking ownership of something. And there are a lot of, like, I, I always love looking at the different names of these varieties and in some of these varieties, the names reflect the people that cared for them, like the one gentleman with the melons. Uh, Tommy Melon, was it called? Yeah, uh, to- uh, Tommy Apple Melon. Tommy Apple Melon. I- so that one, yeah, that one was named after the gentleman that we got the seed from. Sometimes we name it after. It, it kind of depends on what, the, that's what they, their family had called it. So we usually use it, choose the name. Um, the closest name that makes the most sense to the location or person where it came from, if it's an unnamed variety. A lot of times varieties already have a name, you know, but sometimes um, it's just a name they've been calling it and, it, you know, it kind of sticks after a while. Mm-hmm. Again, I just think it's an interesting way of seeing how the cultural history of something continues with the seed itself. That helps preserve the stories along with it and keeping his story 
with the seed, I think, is important. And that's what we try to do with all of our seeds as we find them. Unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, the story of the founder or the originator of the seed has kind of um, been lost in the, you know, in time. But uh, fortunately, some, you know, quite a few writers still have stories that are attached. This is kind of more of a side question, but have you guys ever thought about putting together a collection of some of the stories of the seeds? We've thought about it, we, and we've tried to do it through, you know, like our whole seed catalog and, you know, different Mac publications and stuff, but we haven't did a – we've thought about doing more of a thorough, you know uh, – you know, we've been doing more and more online, and we're also working on YouTube videos right now that tell a little bit more of each story of each seed. Um, we're just starting that process. We probably have about 20 videos up so far. But um, in time, we'd love to produce a publication that tells, you know, more of the story and background on more of the seeds. That's fantastic. I'm definitely checking those videos out, and anyone listening should also. Now, if, when you get a seed from a different location, are there any particular... So you've made specific travels out to China to get some seeds, for example. Are there any special permits that you need, or was it take to get a seed in and out of a country? Well, into the U.S., um, it depends. Um, generally, though, um, what is required in most cases is getting a phytosanitary certificate. And so um, you can... On the country is the the difficulty of getting that can vary. Usually, we work with like a seed company or an organization in the country to get the phytosanitary, and then they just ship it back to us. Um, so that's uh, usually what's required. Sometimes you can get a small lots permit also and bring the seeds in, like package seed, without a um, you know without a phytosanitary certificate. And then you know a lot of people though just bring the seeds on their persons and or ship them back in the mail and in general the inspectors you know it, it varies but in general I would say the way most seeds come into this country are come come the same way they've always come with you know immigrants or travelers who just ate a tomato and saved a few seeds out of it and brought it back so it's not um, necessarily the totally legal way but that's how it, most <laughs> seeds have traveled you know for centuries it's still people just grab a few seeds out of a tomato or whatever, and, and it just travels with the people. You know, immigrants coming here from Poland or wherever, for centuries, that's how most of our seeds have arrived. Good, good or bad, that's how, you know, generally what happens. I was reading your book, The Heirloom Life Gardener, and I found it really interesting that in Italy, the tomato was brought in from another country. And again, I just think it's really interesting to see the, some of the stories of these seeds that we'd naturally associate with one place. It actually has a deeper heritage to somewhere else. Yeah, it's, uh, so many things have become, uh, you know, kind of icons of the country or their food. But, you know, a few hundred years ago, like Thailand, a few hundred years ago, maybe 400 years ago, the chili pepper really didn't exist there. So and now, you know, Thailand, the chili pepper is everything to their food. And so many places, it's the tomato for, you know, Italian food has become iconic. But, you know, a few hundred years ago, they didn't, you know, four or 500 years ago, they really didn't have the tomato. So it's like... Uh, totally reshaped their food culture probably more almost more than anything else in italy besides maybe wheat is uh you know tomato that's incredible to think of now speaking of uh, food culture here i'm curious what does it take so for you guys to say this is a seed we need to carry because you said a little bit about running some trials before it's 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 difficult to figure out what we want to carry every year because there's so many different seeds. It's a lot of work uh, trialing, researching, getting information, but um, and there's so much available. So basically, what we look for every year is finding the things that are the most unique. You know, the of course we're looking for stories, colorful vegetables, flowers, fruits, herbs, 
and also things that taste great, things that um, just look amazing and grow amazing. You know, we, ideally, we're trying to find those amazing crops that do great, produce well, you know, taste good and look and have amazing stories. In some cases, they don't have all of that, but we, it, our number one goal is to find as many of those that we can that are, you know, just out of circulation, but should be, you know, that should be in the general public, but have somehow disappeared or never got popular. So, uh, for example, the pink celery is a, a great example, you know. Why don't we have pink celery, or why don't we have, you know, purple cauliflower or purple carrots? Why aren't these things, you know, common? Or the red buckwheat, you know, why aren't we growing red buckwheat in this country? So we're always looking for new, not necessarily new things, but new to America or new to, uh, in, in a lot of cases, new to the whole, uh, you know, the whole uh, culinary scene, not just in America. A lot of things, a lot of times these things like pink celery, for example, even in China, is mostly just growing for restaurants right around Beijing. It's not really... Uh, knowing a whole lot out of Beijing other than a few, you know, home gardeners and a few, you know, a few people might grow up for a few restaurants, but it's very, uh, it's not something you see in grocery stores. And that's the way most of these varieties are. They should be, you know, commonly available, but just people don't know about them. They're just used to white celery. So that's just kind of what stays on the table or, uh, or yellow, car- orange carrots, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, fortunately a lot of these colors are starting to show up more and more, you know, at farmers markets and so forth. Yeah, uh, I actually used to work at farmers markets quite a bit, and that was one of the things I loved was when I got to see the multiple different colors, the new different varieties. And in part, my work there was with an apple orchard. And part of the great thing about apples is obviously just like all the other seeds, there are just thousands of different varieties that you can grow. And I was always amazed at the people that didn't know there were more than golden delicious, red delicious, and honey crisp because yeah. there's just such a wealth of flavor out there. Even in just yeah, looking at the narrow so spectrum of apples, apples, there are such yeah, a, a sorry. <laughs> I no, go on about amazing. apples. It's amazing. It's, yeah, it's amazing all the diversity in apples and pears and apricots. Uh, just every one of these crops, whether you take eggplants or um, even something that seems to the average person boring, like potatoes. You know, most people think a potato is a potato, but when you start looking into it, you know, an apple or a potato, it's way more than what you know. Most people think an apple has white flesh and red skin, and they all taste about the same. But uh, it's totally, and the same with potatoes. You know, all these crops have so much diversity and flavors and stories that, um, you know, totally need to be brought out and, you know, reintroduced or introduced for the first time. Among the many facets of your operation is Bakersville, uh, a pioneer village that's a part of the main headquarters, which I thought was so cool. Can you tell me a little bit about what made you decide to start this? Well, it's, me and my wife had always been interested, you know, right after we got married, uh, we'd always been interested in history and going to historic places. So we decided to start putting it, well, we had the seed store in and a couple of outbuildings. So we started putting in different things. We put in some pens for heritage chickens and some other animals, that are, you know, just for display. And we started putting in some gardens and we thought, why not put in, you know, a restaurant? And we put in the little blacksmith shop and a music barn and so forth and so forth. So when we have our festivals here, there's a little bit more for people to do. There's a little bit of place for people to get out of the weather if it's raining. And also just day-to-day when people come out, there's a little more for them to do as they go shop through the us. There's a few other little shop, side shops as well as, you know, of course, the gardens and the poultry and uh, miniature horses and donkey and sheep and peacocks and so forth. So it gives people kind of a place to come and see not only the gardening, but also kind of what 
little bit, a little taste of what, you know, life was like before, you know, uh, everything became, uh, connected to a iPhone or a television, you know, mm-hmm. kind of take people back a little bit to, uh, where they come out and spend the day basically on the farm and, uh, have a picnic lunch and walk through the gardens or greenhouses and, uh, you know, basically get a little bit of farm life and, uh, what, you know, what, what society was like before everything became uh, globalized as far as the economy. I think that's incredible. It's the moment I heard about, like, I have to go visit this at some point. It sounds amazing. And again, you're, if I remember correctly, you're close to Laura Ingalls Wilder country too, aren't you? We are. Yeah. We're only like five miles from the Laura Ingalls Wilder house. So it's, uh, we're right in that same neighborhood. And we oftentimes get a lot of people that are visiting the Wilder house. We'll visit here, vice versa. A lot of people that come to the festival, of course, stop at the Wilder house here in uh, Mansfield. So it's uh, we're right near uh, Springfield, Missouri, southern Missouri, Springfield, Branson area. We're about an hour or so away from both of those. So just uh, get, a lot of, get a lot of people that stop that are traveling through to different locations. We're kind of right in the middle of the country. So we do get a, we do get a fair amount of tourists, especially in the warmer months. <laughs> that that that's definitely uh, always a nice plus during the warmer months. Now, I kind of want to close this interview, which has been fantastic, with uh, a question that I'm just curious. Do you have a favorite story to a seed or a favorite variety of, I know, oh, all really, the ones you grow, yeah. I narrow it down? <laughs> yeah, that, that's re- yeah, really hard. I mean, there's so many, so many great stories. I'm trying to think of what my favorite would be. Probably, well... I, I can't. I can't say a number one favorite. There's just too many. I mean, each category. You know, I, I love so, so many of them. But one of the stories that I probably, um, at least for our company, has been connected at least uh, from clear from the beginning is the Alibaba watermelon. And there was a gentleman from Iraq who, about oh no, it was probably been like '97. We started to write to him, and at that time, I believe he was li- living in Iraq. He'd moved out and moved to London. You know, four or five years later, I believe, and he might have lived in Turkey for a year or two. But anyway, he started sending us seeds, and one of the first things he sent us was the Alibaba watermelon. And he said, this is an old variety from Iraq. Uh, we call it Alibaba watermelon. And he said, since the war started going on in Iraq, he actually sent it to us, I believe, in between the wars. Yeah, it was in between the wars, because that was the 90s. So it was after the first Iraqi war. But he said, since the war, uh, the first Iraqi war, America had introduced a lot of new seeds, mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, farmers had switched over to growing, you know, hybridized varieties. They were losing their traditional varieties at a, a really big pace. Mm-hmm. So he sent me that letter, you know, and that was before the second Iraqi war. Like, when did that happen? 2001, 2002, three, and there. So this was like 97, 90, yeah, 97 or 98, somewhere in there. And this variety, when we grew it, it did better than any of our other varieties uh, at that time, and it also tasted the sweetest watermelon, most flavorful watermelon, and also keeps better than about any other watermelon we had. So we were really excited to get it into the catalog. And our customers loved it. Uh, Dr. Amy Goldman featured it in her uh, uh, Melons for the Passionate Grower as the best-tasting watermelon. And so uh, it, from there, it basically has become one of our top-selling watermelons year in and year out for the last uh, 20 years. And uh, over the years since then, this gentleman, we haven't heard from him for a number of years, so I don't know, you know, what, where he's at or what's up with him. But anyway, probably in about 2005, we got another little batch of seed from him, as well as a letter saying that he was living in London now with some relatives and that he couldn't garden anymore. Here's some more seeds. He said that the situation, you know, after the second war, 
Um, America had introduced a whole lot more hybrids from the second war, and uh, the traditional rice were being discouraged. And here's some more seeds. Um, please keep them going for me, uh, you know, if, if you like them. And uh, anyway, that was the last we'd heard, of, heard from this gentleman. But it's just varieties like this or varieties we've got from Syria also right before the war. A lot of these varieties, you know, it could be a war. It could be multiple different things that could happen that make, you know, countries lose varieties even quicker than they already were. And we try to keep these things, you know, at least the best of them. We try to keep going, you know, so... In the future, if somebody wants them again, they can take them back to their culture, you know, at some point in the future. That's amazing. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Jared, thank you for spending this time with us. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Oh, the best place is, you know, just rareseeds.com. You can also pick up one of our catalogs, the Whole Seed catalogs, at pretty much any major newsstand uh, or, and a lot of supermarkets have it too. So you, you can either buy it or you can just read it in the store for that matter. And, um, of course, Facebook is, uh, we have a lot of stuff on Facebook all the time. So you can find us under Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds on Facebook. So thank you again, Jer, so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Big thanks to Jer for being on the show today. It was a pleasure to have him on the show and talk about the incredible history to some of these varieties. You can learn more about Jared and his work by checking out their website, rareseeds.com, and by following them on social media. All of this will be linked in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. If you're new to the show, please subscribe to the podcast and your podcast player of choice. We are available on iHeartRadio, Spotify, CastBox, Overcast, Stitcher, and of course, Apple Podcasts. While you are there, please be sure to leave a rating and review, letting others know how great the show is. This has been Terrence Lehew and the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast reminding you to keep farming the dream.